It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What is the role of the Department of Justice? Who holds the DOJ accountable? And what existed before the DOJ? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. So it feels like there are a million shows about the power of law and order, but none of them follow the United States' largest law firm, the Department of Justice, at least none that I've seen. So, you know, shoot me a message if there is one because I'd love to watch it. But the DOJ is so compelling because within the past year, it's made headlines for appointing two special counsels to investigate both a former and sitting president. That decision came from U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is important stuff. If the president appoints the attorney general and the DOJ investigates things that have such important implications on our nation, then who holds the DOJ accountable in their investigations? And how has history molded the DOJ. Well, here to talk me through all of this and more is Fordham University Law School professor and author of The People's Court, Jed Sugarman. And Jed joins me now. Jed, what's going on? Not too much. Just, you know, <laughs> trying to keep up with uh, all the legal and non-legal twists and turns in the world. But yes. Thanks for having me on. You know, um, I say this all the time about sports is people are drawn to sports because of the drama. And obviously, politics have much more of an implication for our everyday lives than sports do, well, depending on how how big of a sports fan <laughs> you are, I guess. But, yes, you know, it's yes. people are attracted to this drama uh, and there has been a lot of drama going on. The reason why we're having this conversation now about the DOJ is, you know, chances are you've heard the words classified documents in the last few weeks. Um, if you haven't, you might want to turn on your TV or read a news article. <laughs> But, yes. you know, we that that's a whole other podcast on classified documents and what's going on over there. But the DOJ has been a topic of news as of late. So let's start with um, just a basic definition of the Department of Justice. Well, the, the, that's a great question in terms of its uh, its scope, because the Department of Justice is one of the many departments that are part of the the cabinet and part of the executive branch. Um, it was actually not even part of the founding. So the at, at the very start of the government, um, the start of the new federal government when the constitution was passed, the constitution doesn't mention any departments, but it implies it recognize, recognizes heads of departments and it left it up to Congress to decide how to create them. So the first Congress created a department of foreign affairs that becomes the Depart- that becomes the State Department later. It re- created a Department of War. Obviously, that became the Defense Department. And they created a Treasury Department. But they created no department for the Attorney General. <laughs> it was sort of you know, more of the of, of a legal advisor, like the White House Counsel. And there's no Department of Justice for the first 80 years of the government. It's created later. But now, it's, now the Justice Department is one of, let's say, 15 departments. Um, that are part of the cabinet. And there are really two different, um, if you're asking what is the Department of Justice, there's something that we call main justice. I don't mean the the state of Maine. <laughs> I mean, I mean the main justice is what it, basically the building, the Justice Department, and all of the officials who are in D.C. 
And then that's part of a network of 94 U.S. attorneys and U.S. attorneys offices who are the prosecutors on the ground in each of the districts throughout the country. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. So basically you're saying when they made the constitution, when they wrote the constitution and passed it, they are like, ah, you guys just duke it out. We don't really need anyone to to tell us (laughs) who's right and who's wrong in this. Um, I mean, obviously that's, that's boiling it out a little too much probably, but, um, well, it is, they, they couldn't decide what the structure would look like and they just left it. They said, look, we we're going to give Congress this power to decide how to create an executive branch. Um, and so that and then that's what happened over, you know, over the course of American history is that the executive, the executive branch grew around the president, the president and the vice president were the only people who were in the executive branch. And now today, the executive branch is massive. So what did they do before the DOJ? What existed? That's a great question. So uh, what existed was uh, there were district attorneys. They weren't called U.S. attorneys for a long time. So for decades, they were called district attorneys, just like we have state district attorneys too. But they were not part of uh, of a single department. They were um, they were embedded in or they did the work related to the more of the Treasury Department than anyone else. And so it was related to the fact that the federal government didn't play as much of a role in criminal enforcement or in regulation in general, but it mm-hmm. did. But the federal government did a lot with um, in customs houses with imports and exports and making sure that tariffs were being collected. That was much more of a Treasury Department matter. And prosecutors had a relationship more with the Treasury Department. And then they were scattered as lawyers. They were scattered through all of the other departments as they were formed. And there and there was no centralization. There was no uh, no department to supervise or hire and fire and focus on what these different prosecutors are doing. Huh. It's very decentralized. So then where was the turning point? Because now we've got three different agencies under the DOJ. You've got the Bureau of Corrections, Immigration, and Investi- Investigation. So how did that evolve? And what do each of those agencies now do? Well, and there are many more than that, right? So the FBI. I mean, so immigration right, is right. more is so immigration has been was part of the DOJ, and now more of of, of immigration enforcement is de- it was moved over to Department of Homeland Security at, right after nine eleven. So it was during the Bush administration they created the Department of Homeland Security. So there's been a lot of movement, like the DEA, you know, the FBI, um, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement um, uh, uh, Agency. These are parts of the DOJ and antitrust. Um, is also a big part of the DOJ. So it has a lot of different enforcement, both criminal and civil matters. Um, uh, DOJ plays a huge role in mm. all of that. So what was so you, when you're asking what the turning point was? So what I I went back and and studied this history. There was a there was a myth that um, it was true that the Department of Justice was created in 1870, right after the Civil War and during Reconstruction, and there was an assumption and a bit of a um, and what I'm told about different people who've worked high up in the Department of Justice, they loved this story that the the, the DOJ was created as part of Black civil rights of of you know after abolition and Reconstruction was uh, was trying was was a fight over uh, civil rights and um, freedmen's rights that the 1870 turning point was for the federal government to have more of a role in enforcing those rights. And as I dug into the story, I found it was the opposite. The opposite was true. Really? Yeah. So in, in a nutshell, yeah. So what, So the story I just told you about decentralization, right? Um, decentralization was the way that a lot of the very pro-civil rights 
Um, these are back back when we're talking about the radical Republicans. The radical Republicans are who you know that's that Lincoln is uh, is a unifier of the of of this new Republican Party, and the radical Republicans are um, what come after Lincoln and you know, passing the Thirteenth Amendment to free the slaves and the Fourteenth Amendment. That's as we get more and more into the radical radicals, you know, the radical Republican um, effort to uh, fight for legal recognition of these rights and uh and the pushback was that, that there was so much of this decentralization on the ground that allowed for different lawyers to on their own fight for these civil rights claims um there was pushback for how first of all on on how aggressive these civil rights claims were and also on the expense of them that the more conservative Republicans, actually back then, this is the funny thing, is they called themselves the liberal Republicans, but liberal like, um, you know, neoliberal, more of, of uh, they were actually more conservative than the radicals. They wanted a more centralized way to control and cabin in the lawyers in these different departments to get them to back down, to have a, a political figure as the leader of a department, that would be the attorney general, who would, who would rein in the civil rights freelancing by some of these these lawyers on the ground that is yeah that's fascinating when you see how the doj has evolved and where it began and the fact that you looked into that and it's you know everyone's saying this but it might be a different story um you know it's it's an important part of our history all right we've got to step aside for a quick recess but we'll be back right after this from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You bring up, you know, Republicans and liberal and, and you know, all these buzzwords now that might mean something um, depending on the political climate at the time. And yeah. my my thought with the DOJ is, you know, they say uh, they are independent and impartial, but obviously um, the president appoints the attorney general. So how do you maintain an air of impartiality when you're appointed by someone that has a strong political leaning? Yeah, that's a great question. That's always this has been one of the biggest changes over American history was that, um, first of all, in that story, here's one aspect of that story of independence that people I don't think realize. When the Department of Justice was created, it was created at a time where the president had the least amount of control over the ah. different members of the cabinet. This was part of it's you know, getting into the weeds a little bit, but remember, you know, after Lincoln, there was uh, uh, his his vice president stepped into the presidency. His name was Andrew Johnson, and he fought with Congress, and Congress then pushed back and passed a law to limit presidential power and protect Lincoln's holdovers, like Lincoln's Department of War, uh, Secretary of War, and Lincoln's other secretaries. They were still in office after Lincoln was shot. So the um, Andrew Johnson was a racist president who wanted to uh, end Reconstruction as fast as possible. The radical Republicans wanted to protect Reconstruction. And so when the Department of Justice was created, the attorney general was protected from the president and was, in, was, was not removable by the president unless the Senate agreed. So the story that we tell about, you know, the, this, this, the story that is often told about the Department of Justice and that it's, that the attorney general is appointed and can be, is, is 
selected by the president and can be removed by the president. That wasn't true in the early Department of Justice. For, for decades, the attorney general was protected from removal. Um, and, and, and that was a founding structure for the DOJ. But here's what happens over time. Presidents use the appointment process and handpicking one of their own. And over the 20th century, both parties, Democrats first, but then the Republicans, um, as presidents, start handpicking their cronies, uh, the people they've been friends with and the people who um, are, are sort of you know, on their team and, and beholden to them. And that's the way that presidents have made the Department of Justice less and less independent over time. That is an important point, because um, what is the alternative? Who should there be? I yeah. mean, is there another way that we could do this where the appointment doesn't come from the president and it comes from a more independent election, if you will? Uh, well, that's how, that's exactly what the states do. I mean, think about how many states. Most states have a separate election for their secretary right. of state. Right. And secret secretary of state and their state attorney general. So this is what sometimes is called the unbundled executive. Right. You don't have to have a single president, a single head, head uh, you know, head of head of the executive branch. And that's the only person you elect. So states have been doing this for a very long time, you know, direct elections for different members of the executive branch. And then what happens when you have different you know, a, a governor of a state from one party and, a, and a, an attorney general from another party or different factions um, this is this is something that states deal with all the time and they still they still manage you know the states aren't descending into total chaos. i mean maybe some states are, but, <laughs> but you know it's over it has it's 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 worked out okay it's worked out fine but that's not our structure are, um, the, it is true that there's something called the unitary executive theory, and it takes on different you know, there are different versions of how extreme it gets. But the basic idea is that we only have one president and one lead, one head of the executive at a time, and uh, and that choice means that um, that you know as as the constitution as the founders and framers designed it, that president was supposed to have more control over the the federal executive than states gave their governors. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there is a still a question uh, about independent agencies, meaning you know, the, the independent agencies go back to back you know, over 100 years. And some of the most important ones are things like the Federal Reserve or the Fed. And it's really important to have um, major economic policy made without an eye towards getting a president reelected, you know, making sure that interest rates are low just in time for the president to run for reelection. Um, and so that was why independent agencies were created is that there was a recognition that you needed more expertise and less political meddling or less political self-dealing on major technical issues or legal issues. So um, the way that the, the DOJ is, is structured is that the, the attorney general is appointed by presidents and can be fired by presidents. But we've also experimented with, uh, with special counsel or independent prosecutors since yes. Watergate. Right. And so there's been this fight and that statute, you know, so you go from Watergate to then the um, uh, 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 to then Clinton and Whitewater and the Kenneth Starr investigation. And both parties decide that they're going to let the statute lapse the statute that was the basis for independent prosecutors. It, ex it expires and they don't replace it. 
So what's now left when you hear about special counsel these days and the different special counsel that, you know, whether it was Mueller or now with the different special counsel on the classified documents, that's based on an internal regulation, not a law passed by Congress, but a regulation within the DOJ to create a set of special internal rules for picking an independent counsel, a special counsel. So when does that moment happen and who has to, is it the attorney general who goes and says, hey, we need a special counsel for this? Or does it come from political pressure from both sides? Oh, it it, it can come from political pressure, but the person who makes that decision is the attorney general. Right. And so just to just, you know, not so long ago, there was the, the the where did Mueller come from? Remember that Jeff Sessions was attorney general under Trump, but he recused himself when there was re- when when there were news reports and this is the way that you know having a having a free media you know for for all our cable news and newspapers out there right you know it's it's important to have an independent set of journalists and the uh, um and that really you know the investigation into russian involvement in the 2016 campaign sessions was photographed with having conversations with some of those figures, he recused himself and that left Rod Rosenstein as the next in line um, in the Department of Justice to be the acting attorney general, not the not for everything, but he was the acting attorney general with respect to that investigation. Mm-hmm. And he picked, he triggered the special counsel provision and picked Mueller. And so now in the Biden administration, um, this is Merrick Garland's choice. He's not recused from it, but he select because of how sensitive it is. He picked one special counsel for the um, for the Trump investigations and then picked a different special counsel for the political sensitivity of Biden's handling of classified documents. And who makes up that special counsel? The attorney general chooses. Uh, the, the attorney general has that independent has has that full power to pick someone with the checks and balances of public opinion and the media to look at and scrutinize who's being chosen there. And Bingo. So, uh, Well, that's the point of my question is just even I mean, we don't have to get into the politics of the classified documents. It's been this is not the first time it's happened and nor are we seeing it end by any means. But, you know, if you have a if if someone is investigating Joe Biden, let's say, and Joe Biden appointed the attorney general who is now appointing people, it just seems a little silly. Yeah, I mean, this is you're 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 exactly onto one of our structural problems we've had. This is a problem for both parties, and we don't have real independence. We The only reason why we might get independence is because of public opinion and the media, but ultimately you're right. If you've got an attorney general, more often than not, who is picked because of how close he or she is to the president – um, and then they're picking the special counsel. How independent is, is that? <laughs> right. So what, right. So that's what we have now. That was the 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 system was different when there was a full statute from Watergate up through the Clinton, the the you know the Whitewater and the uh, the Kenneth Starr investigation. They um, those special those independent counsel were selected by judges not by the attorney. The attorney general triggered a process, but then judges supervised it. And that attorney general was not removable, not fireable by the president. Do you think we'll ever get back to that? I mean, you know, can we get any major legislation passed through this Congress? Especially, <laughs> I mean, one thing that the parties like is being immune and um, and and having corruption be a little bit uh, under the radar. And so, 
um, you know, what the reason why the statute passed in the first place was post Watergate reform. And there was a huge public opinion push from both parties, enough from both parties to agree to a full statute with more independence. Mm -hmm. And then it was a little too close to home. Right. The, the Republicans resented the Iran. Uh, first of all, you know, not everyone loved how you know, some lesson from Watergate was good thing. Congress investigated Nixon, but not everyone thought not everyone agreed. Um, and Scalia was actually in the Nixon administration in the DOJ during Watergate. And lo and behold, Scalia becomes the only member of the court to find that the independent counsel was unconstitutional. The structure of it was unconstitutional. Mm. He lost seven to one with lots of conservatives on the other side. So then you get Iran-Contra and you get special investigate, you know, get special independent prosecutors investing investigating the Reagan administration. And then you get Kenneth Starr investigating Clinton and both parties basically agree we'd rather be a little bit more protected and insulated and immune from investigations. Let's get rid. This is too independent for us. Um, it was a, a little bit of like a bipartisan collusion, if you will. You know, we a lot of talk about Russian collusion. Well, let's just talk about collusion at home. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party were very happy not to be investigated by any independent prosecutors. And so I think we're still in that mode now. That is wild. You know, you would like to think we have checks and balances, right? Uh, different legal protocols, depending on what issue it is, if it's a local issue, if it's a state issue, you know, um, you know, a federal issue. When does it become a DOJ issue? Well, it, 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 this is a great example of uh, uh, one breaking piece of news is that George Santos could be investigated by, you know, he, he was already being investigated for fraud. Um, by the SEC for his involvement in a pyramid scheme. And the DOJ just said, I think on Friday, they said, hey, uh, the FEC is the Federal Election Commission. So the federal they said to the Federal Election Commission and to uh, and to other agencies, hey, everyone back off a bit, take, you know, take a step back. We got this. So the DOJ, and this is a signal that this is not, this is not just about election, uh, uh, election questions and maybe civil, civil questions. This is the DOJ saying we're, we're looking at this as a criminal matter. And so that's the, so essentially if the DOJ says we're getting involved, the other departments defer to the DOJ mm. on when it's a criminal matter or even a possible criminal matter, the DOJ gets precedence over them. Who holds the DOJ accountable? Oh my God, that is the that is the, that is the fifty billion dollar question. Well, ultimately, Thank you. if you want to give me that, fifty billion dollars, I will gladly accept. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I don't have to because there is no right answer to that question, uh, except that right now, um, you know, and, and over the last two hundred, this is part of the theory of of uh, of the design of the executive branch. The president has uh, has control over these different departments. Um, there is a debate about whether Congress, how much power Congress has to create more independence. I wrote a paper where I came up with a balance, um, trying to take it take seriously both presidential control but also checks and balances. There is something called the, okay. So, so one answer is um, from from many uh, from many who support the power of the president not being checked. Um, and to be have control over the attorney general, the voters are the check. You know, president's got to run for re-election. Well, that's fine when the president's serving one term. But what about a second-term president who's a lame duck? You know, like there is no check there. And what happens if that president's a first-term president and doesn't want to be investigated so that that president can run without being investigated? Well, presidents 
are going to serve themselves and they're going to shape those decisions that are going to make it harder for voters to find out things. I don't think that's the right answer. So um, so I what I've suggested, first of all, there are in, there are inspectors general who are inside the different departments. And there is an inspector general who is supposed to be independent inside the Department of Justice, who has his own office or her own office to investigate claims of corruption or illegal activity. Now, one of them was investigating Obama for some conduct related to the mayor of Sacramento and Obama fired that attorney general. Wow. Uh, Sorry, fired that inspector general. And then Trump played the same played the same card when he fired some of the inspector gen- inspectors general who are investigating, for example, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and mm-hmm. an inspector general who was involved with the Ukra- with the Ukraine um, uh, phone call and the, you know, uh, 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 the quid pro quo involved with Ukraine. So this is, again, this is a lesson about how presidents abuse their power to control or fire different officials in the Department of Justice. And uh, you know, Trump fired um, Jim Comey um, for looking too closely. So this is a recurring problem. And, and some would say that Clinton also had some of these same problems. Um, so this is it's not one party or another. It's both parties. And so my what I've argued for is a way to make more independent, unremovable officials, not necessarily attorney general, but other officials who would be checks and balances who have to be in the room on big questions. And they're not removable by a president, and they would be protected to either be the uh, the inspector general who couldn't be fired, or would play uh, or other kinds of attorney um, of of uh, deputy attorneys general or assistant attorneys general who would not be fireable by a president. So why is it the pre? I mean, I mean, this might be a dumb question because the president has a lot of power, but why is it not the attorney generals who are able to fire the an, an inspector general? Well, I, I think one answer is that this is, first of all, is that there is a, an argument that the president has to be able to have this removal, removal power over not just heads of departments, but also the high officials. Sometimes we call these the principal officers, the constitution lists, it doesn't say who they are, but if you're a principal officer, the theory is that the president has to be able to remove. It, it, none of this, by the way, none of this is in the constitution. There is nothing listed in the, the framers did, of the constitution in Philadelphia did not mention the president having removal power. They mentioned the pardon power and the commander in chief power. And they mentioned um, uh, the, the power of a president to sign legislation and, and, and conversely veto legislation. And it's an assumption and it's a wrong assumption that the uh, that presidents and other, you know, and kings and queens, et cetera, all had an executive power of removal. There is a line in the who constitution that says- Who gave them that, that says, power? The, who gave them that power? It is a myth that has been developed over time that went out of went out of fashion because it was it was wasn't true and then it's been the Roberts court that has restored this myth and it, it and the, and they they get the history wrong over and over again they've developed a whole set of historical stories that are each of them is 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 wrong and it's a good lesson about originalism they claim now I say this I'm I'm an originalist because I think history matters and I think I'm an originalist because I I think uh, the law makes sense when you read the text and you have to understand the text and context the problem is that the people who claim to be originalists aren't 
aren't such aren't so good at history <laughs> so <laughs> so they like they 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 have these stories that they that they like and, and some of those stories are that in the founding um the first congress uh, uh, the first Congress debated this power and gave this power to uh, uh, decided that the Constitution, they interpreted the Constitution and voted for some statutes that created the departments that recognized a constitutional power of the president to fire officials. And that didn't happen. That's that that's called the decision of 1789. And I've got a, uh, this article coming out in a month with the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, where I show that that is a myth. Um, and in fact, the opposite happened. They rejected this theory. But if you like if in the 20th and 21st century, uh, both Democrats and Republicans like increasing presidential power, whether it's because of world wars or the Cold War or uh, or or the fact that Congress is broken. So you need someone to you know crack eggs and get things done. They've decided to buy into this historical myth for the for for their president. They like when you're in the White House, it's good to be king and it's good to be yeah. president. Each party then is uh, is biased in favor of having presidential power when they're in power. Right. I mean, of course, who wouldn't want that if you're president? You want all the power, I'm sure. Exactly. But and presidents choose the justices, right? So not only keep in mind, presidents, it's not just the yep. presidents are handpicking their attorneys general. It's the presidents who nominate the justices. Well, it's not a coincidence that presidents on from both parties keep appointing ju justices who all who either you know so many of them worked in the in the um, in their administration. Um, Obama appointed Elena Kagan, who was Solicitor General in his own administration. Breyer worked as an as a um, uh, within administrations. Both sides do this, and then when they get on the bench, they are already predisposed to favor presidential power. Whew, what a world we live in, Jed. <laughs> I know, it's, right? It is. It is really really crazy. We'll be right back after this. You know, I, I, we, we talked about attorney general, inspector general. What, what other jobs are there within the DOJ that we should know about? Wow. Um, well, you know, so, so there, the inspectors general are all through the different departments, and they're super important. So that's, you know, so it's really important to protect. And you know, one of the lessons about the Trump administration and the Ukraine scandal was that we need to be protecting our, our inspectors general more. We they need to be, you know, protected. Regardless, you know, I think especially in the State Department or let's say the Treasury Department with so much money on the line, and um, they, they that's one key area of protection. Um, within the Department of Justice, you know, the other there are. Um, the, it's a it's a department that houses lots of different officials with lots of different important roles. The Department of Justice is all, is what enforces antitrust violations. So that's a lot of you know structure of the economy. Um, that's a big role in the Department of Justice. A lot of uh, on the ground criminal enforcement of uh, of of you know drug laws. Um, and the, the big factor is civil rights laws. So the the. Department of Justice lawyers, they play offense and defense. The Department of Justice defends the government when the government's sued by citizens. Um, so if you, you know, for example, it's the Department of Justice and, and the, another key office that you might be thinking about is the Solicitor General's office. They rep when the when uh, the case goes to the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General's office is the uh, or the Department of Justice lawyers who defend um, the uh, defend the government or uh, bring and they also can say play, play defense 
defense and play offense. There's also something called the Office of Legal Counsel, which is kind of the, a mini court. Uh, it's, it's a it's they they write legal opinions, but within the executive branch. So mm. when in the Obama administration, when they were making choices about drone strikes or strikes on an American citizen who was also uh, had gotten involved with terrorist organizations, it was the Office of Legal Counsel who wrote uh, who, who wrote opinions and reports advising the president about what was legal um, and what wasn't. Right. So, Jed, the FBI and CIA also exist. So where do they come in? Because the FBI is part of the Department of Justice. Well, the, the FBI is the uh, is the investigation unit um, coming out uh, that is, is within the Department of Justice and is uh, does more of the on-the-ground kind of police work, detective work, but it's huge as a huge jurisdiction um, within the country um, of domestic policy. But the CIA is independent. The CIA is not part of the Department of Justice. And one of the big reforms um, post-Vietnam was to make sure that the CIA and FBI were separated out and they were in, you know, partly they were in separate departments, but the, to separate them so you couldn't have the CIA doing spying on, you know, to overlap as um, surveilling or uh, playing more of a role in in domestic law enforcement, because a lot of what the CIA was doing was overstepping its bounds in surveilling um, U.S. citizens. And so over time, the, you know, the, what happened after Vietnam was to separate out the FBI and the CIA. But one story about the breakdown during 9-11 was that there was too much separation, that the, that 9-11 and terrorism was a was an overlap of, uh, um, of foreign terrorist groups infiltrating and getting on the ground domestically. And there was a concern that the FBI and CIA weren't able to share information about um, international and domestic terror. And um, and that was a concern. So that like these, I don't think it's easy to design a system that both, you know, is able to keep the country safe and enforce the laws while also protecting civil liberties. And we're always, you know, sort of reacting to the last um, uh, trying to react to the last war um, when we, when we, you know, the last Watergate or the last controversies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have one more question for you because sure. I, I've, I, I could ask you a million more questions, but <laughs> yeah. I know we don't have all the time in the world because I mean, it is, it's, it's important for people to understand how the government works and how they're being protected and how the people they vote in are, you know, operating and, and things like that. I mean, that's as a voting person, you you have that right. And it, it's such a blessing and it's such a good right to have. So um, it, it is I'm, I want to shed light on as much as of this as possible. Um, you're a professor. What's the number one question you get about the DOJ or what would you tell your students um is the most important thing to understand about the Department of Justice? Uh, I, I think the I think the most important thing to understand about the Department of Justice and about the executive branch in general is that we have not been faithful to the founding's ah. concern about the abuse of executive power. That we have ignored the structure. The, the a lot of what we a lot of what the founders did and instruction the constitution was to limit the power of the executive branch they took a lot of powers of the king and the crown of england and they split them up and they gave a bunch to congress and they 
took some powers away and so that the president didn't that the federal government didn't have any of the powers that of some of the powers that the king had and they designed an executive that would not be a king that would not be royal and would not have the powers of a king and over time we've forgotten that and uh, there are a lot of assumptions that judges and lawyers make that just assume that well if if the king had these powers and 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 some of the founders wanted uh, you know to borrow from those some of those theories a lot of of academics and a lot of judges have made a bunch of historical claims that are just wrong and we should get the history right so the thing the, the most important thing is you know i don't know that history can give us all of the right answers but it can give us a lot a lot of the wrong myths and um and that i think is getting the history right is to just study the founders they understood the risk of tyranny and they understood the risk that the importance of separation of powers um sometimes the legislature can act with tyranny sometimes the executive branch can act with tyranny the most important thing is the design of checks and balances i think we've forgotten about checks and balances an important lesson and one to keep an eye on as we progress forward. Jed, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you uh, schooling us and taking a break from your own school and coming <laughs> to getting schooled. I <laughs> appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. If you miss anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the Department of Justice. Number one. The DOJ hasn't always existed. It wasn't even part of the founding government when the Constitution was passed. Now it's one of 15 departments that are part of the cabinet. Number two, Jed pointed out that when the DOJ was created, it was when the president had the least amount of control over people in the cabinet. Now presidents can handpick people for their attorney general. The president also has the removal power, which is not outlined in the Constitution. And number three, the Justice Department allows the Attorney General to appoint a special counsel in extraordinary circumstances, such as a conflict of interest. So if the President appoints the Attorney General and the Attorney General can appoint the special counsel, who holds the DOJ accountable? That's the million dollar question. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the Department of Justice. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Last dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.